Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and good evening. Welcome to Burning Issue. I'm your host, Yazid Kamaldin. Now, Cape Town has been rocked by allegations of sexual abuse within the Muslim community. Now, as you may have heard last week, a young Cape Town woman, now based in Jordan, spoke about alleged abuse she experienced as a child at the hands of her elderly grandfather, a retired principal and respected member of the Burkhab community. She also made allegations against his brother, claiming he too had allegedly abused other girls, which he has denied in a lawyer's letter sent to the media. In light of this, there's been several other women who have come forward to tell these stories of abuse and most notably on social media. The matter continues to divide public opinion. Now, is this the start of a local hashtag MeToo movement where more and more women would be taking to social media to talk about the alleged abuses and also to expose the alleged perpetrators? Have victims of abuse become so frustrated with the justice system that they have to resort to outing their abuses in public? And what are the social, legal, and even religious implications of all of this? Well, that's our burning issue tonight. And on the show this evening, we have in studio, we have Associate Professor of Law, of Public Law, Wahida Amin. Wahida, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Yazid. And we'll also have a number of guests online. We'll have Jamila Umar. She's a senior lecturer in public law at the University of Cape Town. We'll also have a gender-based violence activist, Nuran Osman, and Islamic scholar, Sheikh Fakhruddin Uwaisi. And after Ishai, we speak to Kiran Reis from Mosaic. We also want to hear from you throughout the show. You can SMS us to the number 47913. You can also send us a WhatsApp to 072 2380712 that is 0722380712 and we will open the lines on 0214423530 now i just want to say that the views expressed in the program are not the views of the voice of the cape its management or staff and i also just want to make something very clear that we are not going to be mentioning any names of alleged perpetrators. You have to understand that no charges have been laid and there have been no formal proceedings instituted against the alleged perpetrators. And as far as journalistic ethics go, in terms of our work, and my work at least as a journalist, we only report names of alleged rapists or abusers or any form of sexual violence or other forms of crime once there's been a first appearance in court because then it's on the public record and it's basically part of public knowledge now let's welcome our first guest to the show she is nuran osman and she is the director of the ehata shelter for abused women and children she joins us online nuran assalamu alaikum I just saw you today. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm very well. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Good, good. And we we talked briefly about this when we met. Now, we we want to understand, of course, the perspective of women, because that's really what this show is about tonight, you know. 
Why, firstly, let us talk about sexual abuse, right? I mean, why is talking about sexual abuse openly and honestly within the Muslim community fraught with difficulty? You, of course, at the shelter that you run, you deal with this on a daily basis where women of all ages come to you, whether they are Muslim or not, and they talk about sexual violence and abuse that they have experienced. Why then, if it's so prevalent, are Muslims not addressing it? I think just thinking about how we grow up as it culturally, there are things that can't be spoken about. I remember growing up, my grandmother didn't like for us to say the word peak, but neither were we allowed to say the word sex. And so it's it's a little bit of culture and then a lot of shame. Um, we all know what's going on. We all know it's going on within our own families a lot of the time, too. But it's the whole thing about Mark Mamoy and the Dekdiskanta, and even, I think, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I've heard this a thousand times where in Indian families, for example, say Sharam Kibat. So it's, the, it's all of this kind of, um, let's just hide it and it will go away. But I think it's... A lot of the time, I would like to imagine, I don't know, this is just my guesstimation, that a lot of the, those who are saying hush, 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 are afraid that their own things are going to come out. So for some of them, it's their skeletons that, that may come out, and for some of them, it's their pain and hurt that may come out. Because a lot of our mothers and our grandmothers, too, experienced sexual violations and other violations, but chose not to talk about it because... Ultimately, we're all so concerned with what Dementia say. And what Dementia should be saying at this point is, enough is enough, this won't be tolerated, we are going to protect the victims, not the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Nuran, another thing about this time that we are in is social media. And we are seeing more and more women, I mean, we've seen it in places like Hollywood, of course, where the hashtag MeToo movement started, and we've seen it elsewhere, and now we're seeing it right now in the Muslim community as well, and in South Africa, of course, where women are using social media to speak out about their experience of sexual abuse and violence. What do you think of this? You know, I want to say, where are the safe spaces for our sisters? There aren't any. You know, women go to the police station. Victims, even men sometimes, go to the police station to lay a charge, and they are violated there. They go to some shelters, and secondary victimization takes place. They go to the church, as we've recently seen, and they get asked, what, what panties were you wearing when you were violated? They go to the imams, and the imams say, mark my And I'm saying this from my own experience, because I've had a client in the shelter who was brutally stabbed by a perpetrator on her way from work, and the imam that she went to, and we know that a lot of our victims go to the imam as a point um, of, of, they look for solace, they look for advice, they look to do the right thing, um, and then the imam said to her, you know, if Allah is most forgiving, you must also forgive. I don't know about that when it comes to, you know, the stabbing and the violation and the brutalizing of women. If forgiveness is the first point of call, if the victim chooses to forgive, that's her choice. But there's so many other things that need to happen before that. Um, So I think, you know, social media has become a safe space. Also, we mustn't assume that social media is the victim's first point of call. Um, Often they've spoken to family, they've spoken to friends, they've gone to the police, they've spoken to clergymen, they've spoken to teachers, they spoke, and everybody's just sweeping the 
missing under the carpet. And so she gets to a point where, excuse me, but she gets hurtful and she says, enough is enough. I actually have a story here. I have something to say. This is my love narrative and it's not okay. And I'm going to out it now. So we must ask ourselves, I mean, for a woman or for a young woman, for a child, for a girl to come out on social media and say I was violated. She runs such risk. It's such an act of bravery and courage because she knows they're going to be the misogynists and the apologists and the, those who believe that they need to defend the clergy. They are all going to come on and attack her. So she runs that risk, yet she still does it. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we have sufficient space, safe spaces in this community, in this society, where women can speak and be heard and be supported? Not only women, of course, I mean all victims, but do we have those safe spaces? Or are people saying, nobody's listening to me, and so I'm going to out on social media? So, so essentially, I mean, is there then a a sense of mistrust or maybe even a lack of confidence in the very systems that are meant to protect women and by these systems we also refer to not only the community structures but also the policing system and the judicial system in your experience you work with abused women all the time do you sense that there is mistrust or even a lack of confidence that women have in these Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, for years, as it, I've been at the Yaka shelter for 10 years. I've worked in the gender-based violence sector for 15. Um, and I've been lobbying for training for the South African policing services. I'm almost hopeful that somebody in authority is listening tonight and saying, okay, Noran, we'll take you up on the offer. And if I have to, I'll train them for free. But the, the way that, for example, the police, the courts, the justice system is insensitive to victims. I mean, I'm very happy now that, for example, children can be heard in camera and their children, like courts specializing in the care of children who are victims and those sorts of things. But it wasn't always like that. And police stations are very, very unfriendly places. I volunteer in the victim room at, at Manenberg Police Station, and we do try very hard to reach out to victims, and we get male and female victims. But it, it needs to, the system needs to understand the sensitivities, the, the hurts, the pains, the, the story of, of the victim. Um, that's the one thing. So we know that, for example, one other thing I wanted to say was we, um, my team and I, we work in the prison at Worcester, um, and we love the work that we do there. But there are glaring, glaring issues for us. For example, I've met someone who was um, in for shoplifting, and she was serving a 15-year sentence. Now, we can talk about why it's 15 years and all of that, but I've also met someone who raped a woman who was in for five years. So now you ask yourself, and I'm not a lawyer, I'm sure the legal experts will speak soon, but that's just scary for victims. When we look at it through the GBV lens, then it becomes very scary. The other challenge we have is the one with protection orders, is that you call the police and you call the police and you call the police, and they may come or they may not come or they may arrive and say, oh, sorry, and I'm speaking of experience here, sorry, we can't intervene, this is a, this is a domestic matter. And he's beating her to death. Wow. Um, and nobody wants to enforce the protection orders. Mm-hmm. So those things, I think, particularly in township communities where I work, breed a very deep sense of mistrust. Or, for example, you lay a charge against someone who raped you, you go to the Tutuzela Center, you get the wonderful help that they offer, perpetrator goes to, j- goes to jail seven days or whatever, gets out on 400 rand bail, comes back and terrorizes you and your family. Or he's a gang member. So he gets incarcerated, 
is awaiting bail and everyone knows he's going to get bail but in the meantime the gang terrorizes you and your family to drop charges these are things I listen to stories I listen to every day on the case yeah. Nuran Shukran for all your insights from the ground do stay tuned do stay online though because we need to take an ad break when we come back I also want to introduce Jamila Umar and we want to talk about social media because some people are already sending messages messages about that we'll go for an ad break when we come back we're going into the social media aspect of this Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. Listener 7640 shares an opinion saying, I think if cell phones were available that time, then this would never have happened because it is better to express yourself on a cell phone than to speak to a friend or family. So this is an indication from the listener that social media and technology might make it easier for victims of sexual violence and abuse to get help. But now let's speak to Nuran and also Jamila. Welcome to Burning Issues. Salaam alaikum Jamila. Good evening. <coughs> so, you know, there's a feeling or a perception from this listener that, you know, the social media and the technology might help victims of sexual abuse and violence but i've been following social media over the last week looking at the kind of things that have been said towards persons or women in well specifically the women who have come out and talked about violence and sexual abuse that they have faced and it's not just the case of of the principal there have been other cases of a tv presenter as well you know but the big question i want to ask though is is this really helpful for the um, the victim or is it more damaging you know Jamila I mean what 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 do you make of it because the kind of things that have been said against the woman have been quite vile as well you know yes definitely I've also been following that um, and you know I think I think we first have to ask um, what is social media helpful for um, if if Increasingly, victims and women in particular are using social media to express, um, you know, what has happened to them. Why are they doing that? And if there's a, you know, a cost-benefit analysis of, well, you know, I might face a lot of harassment, but I'm going to do it anyways. You know, then then we have a then then that tells us that we have a very serious problem, as Nuran was saying, about a lack of safe spaces. Because if victims who have who already are traumatized from what has happened to them and um, are taking to social media, despite all the um, all the threats and the harassment that they face, then that tells us that um, that that's almost the only option that they feel is available to them, and that's a real indictment on society. I think. Yeah. Now, Jamila, you are. A law lecturer at the University of Cape Town, is that correct? That's correct. So let's look at the legal implications though, because certainly for me as a journalist, if I'm going to write a story that claims someone is a rapist without that person having appeared in court or without that person even having been convicted or anything, I could be sued, 
right, for defamation and, you know, uh, reputational damage and all of those things. Here somebody goes into social media, makes a video or posts pictures and makes all these allegations against someone. What are the legal implications, though, for both the, the victim of sexual abuse and also the person who's being uh, exposed? So, so you're right, you, you're referring to Section 152, Subsection 2, Paragraph B of the Criminal Procedure Act, which says that if uh, if someone is accused of a sexual offence, their name can't be published until the time that they have pleaded. Um, so that's a very clear um, a very clear situation where um, where someone's identity, when they are an, ele- an alleged perpetrator, can't be publicised. But what about all the cases that never go to court, ever? Um, if we look at um, statistics of sexual violence and if we look at, at rape as just as one set of sexual violence, um, we have on average about 50,000 reported cases of rape a year. Out of that, Sorry, can you just repeat a, that number again? Uh, we have more than 50,000 reported cases of rape. More than 50,000 reported cases of rape yeah. in South Africa. Yes, that's reported to the police. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, out of that, only about 10 to 15 percent uh, get taken to prosecution. So only about, uh, I think the the 2018, 20, the, sorry, the yeah, the 2018-2019. Um, Annual report of the National Prosecuting Authority reports the highest number taken to court, which is about 14%. Um, normally, it's around 10 to 12%. So only about 10,000 cases, um, no less actually, about 5,000 cases are ever going to get to court in the first place. Out of that, only 50 to 70% of the cases that are taken to court are going to result in a conviction. So we're talking about a very small percentage of cases that even get to the situation you're talking about where a journalist can't publish the name um, of an accused person until they've pleaded. So Um, if I look at the numbers just very quickly, it's about 2,500 of 50,000 reported rape cases in South Africa. Only 2,500 victims see some form of justice at the end of a long court process. I just wanted to make sure that that information is clearly known. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and it's, a, it's a shocking statistic. Um, I will say, though, that that is very much in line with global averages. So South Africa is not particularly bad on the numbers. Um, we might be bad on some other things, but on the numbers, we, we kind of average with the rest of the world. That's a normal number of cases that are taken to court um, and a normal number of convictions. Um, but the point to be made from that, besides, you know, it's important to know the statistics because it, it, it impacts on how we think about these issues, but what are we saying to the other 45,000 victims that they have absolutely no recourse if the National Prosecuting Authority decides not to take their case to court? So we're saying to them, you know, people always say you have to let the system run its course. You have to have confidence in the system because if you don't believe in the system, then the system is going to break down even more than it currently has. Um, now, I'm a lawyer, so I believe in processes. Um, 
However, there is no process available for those 45,000 other cases. Um, And so I think telling people that they must believe in the system that's clearly not working for them um, is, you know, is a... It, it really doesn't take you any any further. And for those for those cases that do actually get to court, um, you said some form of justice. And I think that's that's right that there is some form of justice, but it will be a long and difficult process um, for the complainant in those matters to go through. Um, and so, at the end of the day, what we're saying to victims by saying, um, you know, you, you can't say anything unless you go to the police, unless your um, alleged perpetrator stands trial, unless they are found guilty, you know, unless all of those things happen, you can't do anything. Um, and even as a lawyer, I don't think that that's an acceptable um, situation to leave a victim in. Okay. And do you think, though, that that is maybe why we've seen an increase of naming and shaming in um, on social media? Because people, women might feel so disempowered that they feel maybe empowered by going to social media. I think that's definitely part of the answer, um, that there is a lack of confidence in the police and the prosecution and the criminal justice system as a whole. Um, it's, you know, the system... It doesn't have the capacity to deal with a number of criminal cases that we have um, in the country and, and doesn't have the, the training and, and other kind of um, sensitivity capacity to deal with sexual offenses in particular. But I actually think that um, that the biggest reason why, why women use social media and, and other public avenues to voice, um, to voice their stories is not so much because of a lack of confidence in the criminal justice system as much as it is a lack of confidence um, in communities and families. Because yeah. in a lot of these cases where you see, uh, where someone has come forward publicly, um, you know, they will they will say that they've told their families, they've told their communities, and you'll see other people that are commenting on this cases saying things like, we've all known about this guy for years, but nothing ever gets done. So okay. these are not cases where it's been a complete secret, where this is the first time the victim is speaking out. Um, these are cases where the victim has turned to support from their families or their schools or their or the ulama or whoever, um, and has not found recourse. No. And then mm-hmm. they have no... yeah. Yeah. Look, now talking about families and, and relatives, I have two important questions that link to that. So what can one, you know, for example, relatives do when there are allegations of abuse, but the complainant does not want to lay a charge, perhaps due to emotional exhaustion or other fears? So what can relatives do in that situation? I mean, from a legal perspective? You know, that's a, that's a very difficult question to answer. I, I do believe in, um, in the victim having, you know, being the one to make the decision for themselves about whether they want to lay a police complaint and, and follow the system. Um, because even though I wish that our criminal justice system could take more cases to court, I also believe that a criminal trial is only one way to get justice and only one way um, for a victim to find any kind of closure or healing. Um, and that's not going to work for everybody. Um, so I, I do believe in the victim um, 
having a choice. But of course, when the victim is a child, um, the the families then have to make that choice. And I think that that they do have a responsibility when it's someone in a in a who has a public profile who interacts with other children in particular um, to do something that makes sure that they are not able to victimize anyone else in the future. Um, and obviously the, using the criminal justice system is the most appropriate way to do that because that's the, the legal system that, that we all have to abide by. Um, but there could be other options. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one because even if the family does report it, if it doesn't go to court... Um, that doesn't really help the victim. In those situations, um, you know, organizations and schools and um, the ulama do have to intervene and make sure that if there's, if there's grounds to believe the story, um, then steps must be taken to make sure that other, other people are protected. Mm-hmm. Can any steps be taken against relatives or what can happen to relatives who know about the abuse but remain quiet? So if it's a, so they, so the, we don't have a system of compulsory reporting of crime in South Africa. So you, you're not forced to report a crime um, except in the case of abuse of a minor. So if someone, and that could be anyone, a parent, a teacher, a doctor, um, anyone who, who suspects that there's abuse of a child, that could be sexual or any other type of abuse, that you are required by law to report it. Um, and, and failure to do so, um, in terms of the Sexual Offences Act, if it's, if it's sexual abuse that is suspected, is a crime um, that you can be prosecuted for. So that is something... Um, you know, to be in mind as well. I, I think, you know, for the most part, a prosecutor is not going to take the view that much will be gained by prosecuting a parent, for example. Um, but that would but that would be a matter of discretion um, on the part of the prosecutor. But they would be able to, to prosecute them. So, so I, I the mean, the mm-hmm. question is about protection, yeah. you know, rather than rather than looking for prosecution per se. Yeah, but so, I mean, let's look at leaders and particularly religious leaders because this is Voice of the Cape. It's a Muslim radio station. We cater to a predominantly Muslim community and often people in the community turn to religious leaders. Now, what if they know about abuse and they are quiet and they don't do anything about it? I mean, we're also talking, you know, we are going to be looking at religious leaders later in the show as well, but I'm just thinking about that, you know. What responsibility um, obligation do they uh, have? Yeah, so in, in, if uh, you know, if I if I recall correctly, um, religious leaders are not a particularly uh, are not a, a particular category of listed people who have a duty to report. Um, and so, at least in terms of the Sexual Offences Act, um, there isn't a particular duty to report. Okay. However, I will say that as a leader, and particularly as a re- as a religious leader, I mean, it, it is your moral duty to report abuse of a child um, because they, you know, someone has to advocate um, for that child, um, and I, you know, I, I can't I can't um, reconcile myself to the fact that that is not the duty of a religious leader. Surely, at the at the heart of it, 
that is their role, to protect those that are the most vulnerable in their communities. Mm-hmm. Okay, so look, I'm going to have to I've got quite a few more questions But I also have other guests that need to come onto the show Nuran, are you still with us? I am with Okay, sorry about that, Nuran um, Can you, let's get some closing remarks Before we go for an ad break And welcome our next guests Nuran, I mean, it's very informative this evening um, Yourself and Jamila are giving us Really amazing insights, you know from the community perspective and also from the legal perspective. And we'd like to ask both of you just for some closing remarks. I think most importantly for me is, please, families, do not throw your victims away. You know, we have so many women who come to the shelter who say, my mom wants nothing to do with me because she's angry at the perpetrator. She says I keep going, going back. Domestic violence is... It's a revolving door syndrome. It's a repeat cycle. You know, she's hopeful, she goes back. She's hopeful, she goes back. So that's in terms of, of sheltering. In terms of children who, who call molestation, please believe them. Um, have faith in them. Support them. Listen to them. But I think the thing is um, when you've got, uh, for example, you've got a, a victim in your family and that person chooses not to lay charges, um, and, and those sorts of things. Please don't mistrust them. Please don't force. I mean, for me, it's secondary victimization when we force uh, victims to do things that we think will solve their problems. Uh, victims know exactly what they want. I mean, I, I was reading some of the posts, and honestly, I get very nauseous with some of the things I witness daily. But I was reading some of the posts where people were saying, why did she have to out it on social media? Why Facebook? Why this? It's actually not your business how she chooses to deal with her trauma because it's hers. You were not there. You were not violated. She gets to decide who she wants to talk to, how she wants to do it. Um, and that doesn't mean you get to just vilify people. But it's her story, it's her narrative, and how she chooses to heal or to seek justice is her business, is her choice, and we should we should decide. We've got many clients in the shelter who choose to go back to their abusive partners. And I can smell trouble when I meet the perpetrator and we try and a perpetrator intervention. But it remains her choice. She should be empowered to choose what she wants to do with with her healing, with her trauma, with her pain and with her experience. And we need to show a lot of love, a lot of care. We need to listen and we need to stop giving advice and forcing and pushing our genders on her or if if it's a male victim. Because we're seeing more and more of that too. We must make the victim the center of the narrative, of the dialogue, of the process and of the healing. Shukran for that, Nuran. And Jamila, any closing remarks from your side? I mean, can I just ask you one quick question from our, to one of our listeners just wants to know very quickly, if you don't mind. So if a perpetrator or an alleged perpetrator, rather, is named on social media before pleading, can the case be dismissed? So it, it is unlikely that the case will be dismissed um, immediately. Um, what will I mean? It's, it's a standalone offence, so the person who publishes the name um, can be can be prosecuted under that standalone section. It's unlikely that the case will be dismissed immediately. Um, if there's a if there's a strong case that the accused might not um, might not get a, a fair trial. Um, then that might be possible, but this is far less of an issue in South Africa because we don't have a jury system um, like they do in other parts of the world, like 
like the United States, mm-hmm. for example. Where they could um, be seen as influence. Our, our judicial officers are trained, they take an oath, etc. And so, you know, we have more faith that um, that they can put out of their mind what has been said in the public domain. Yeah. Um, so no, in short, the case won't immediately be dismissed. Yeah, yeah. And then, sorry man, just another listener just briefly wanted to know um, why, listener 2142 wants to know what are the reasons why so many cases don't even get to court? So I, I think um, one, I mean, there's only so many cases that are that our court system can can actually uh, carry. Uh, we have big court backlogs. Um, we have a, a major shortage of police investigators. Um, we have insufficient numbers of prosecutors, and so our whole system lacks the resources and the capacity mm-hmm. to take more cases to court. Um, but there are other reasons as well. Um, for example, um, the police, you know, might not do a, a thorough enough investigation, and therefore, by the time the, the docket gets to the prosecutor, um, the only view that the prosecutor can take is that there's insufficient evidence, evidence okay. to prosecute, yeah. mm-hmm. um, or the victim might might decide not to, to withdraw. Okay, um, Jamila, we're going to have to leave it at that. We need to go for an sure. ad break, but shukran so much for joining us. Afwan, thank you for having me. Okay, wa alaikum